Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Psalms. We're going to be looking at Psalm 32 today. Psalm 32. You know, as Christians, that's in, on page 462, by the way, in your chair Bibles, if you're using a chair Bible. As Christians, we, we talk and we think a lot about sin, don't we? As evangelical Christians, we take sin very seriously. We want to know what sin is. We want to know how to avoid sin. We want to fight against it, how to recognize it in ourselves and others. But we don't usually think as much about how to respond to sin when we find it. So much of our energy is spent on not sinning, which is a good thing, by the way. But we often neglect to think about how we are supposed to respond when we disobey God or when we find ourselves in violation of his law. Yes, it is true. Sin displeases God. We should do everything we can with all of our might, fight against every temptation, every fleeting thought, every careless word, and every act of disobedience. But how we respond when we sin also says a lot about our hearts. How do you respond on the other side of your sin? Is it your tendency to suppress it? Just don't think about it? Pretend it didn't happen? Do you have a tendency to gloss over it, maybe with cheap grace? Just tell myself I'm a Christian, therefore God forgives me and just move on? Maybe you become more and more obstinate. You try to excuse your sin or justify it to yourself. Well, what I did wasn't that bad, or I mean, I used to be a lot worse, right? Or what I did wasn't as bad as someone else. I'm convinced that one of the most common responses to our sin is to hide it. We try to hide it from God. We hide it from others. Sure, we might talk about our sin in general terms, but we don't get specific because we're really afraid of being found out. We think that, man, if people knew the things I've done, even this week, or the the thoughts that have run through my mind, there's no way they would still love me. They would think so much less of me. Think about what I could lose if this got out. And what's crazy is that many of us have a hard time even confessing our sin to God in specific terms, as if he doesn't already know what we've done. In Psalm 32, we'll see two ways to respond to our sin. We can either hide it or confess it. We can either suppress it, shove it down, don't think about it, remain silent, or we can openly confess it to God and others. You see, how we respond to our sin says a lot about the state of our hearts and how we view God. If we view God primarily as a harsh judge ready to stomp on us every time we fail, then we're not going to be open with him. But if we view God as our Father who loves us and desires a relationship with us, then we'll respond to him with openness and confession. So let's read Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 
Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you. And teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy all you upright in heart. This psalm clearly lays out two paths, two choices, the path of silence and the path of confession. Now, I get these two terms from verses 3 and 5. In verse 3, David is on the path of silence. He says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. But in verse 5, he's on the path of confession, right? Um, I, I acknowledge my sin to you. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. So that's where I'm getting these two paths, the path of silence and the path of confession. There's two ways we can go. We can close ourselves off and walk the path of silence, or we can open up and walk the path of confession. Today, I hope we will see that walking the path of confession leads to joy in God. Walking the path of confession leads to joy in God. Let's take a look first at this path of silence. Here in the opening lines of Psalm 32, we see again this word blessed, right? Just like in Psalm 1, two weeks ago, this word literally means happy. So in these opening verses, what we see is that the happy man is not the man who does not sin, right? That's not what this says. The happy man is the man whose transgressions have been forgiven, whose sin has been covered, who has no iniquity counted against him, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, this means there must be those whose transgressions are not forgiven, whose sin has not been covered, who have iniquity counted against them, and who have been deceived, right? This is where the path of silence leads us. You don't want to be that man. The point of this psalm is that you want to be the blessed man, the one whose sins are forgiven. But in order for that path to make sense, we have to understand What is this path of silence? What is this path of hiding? First, we see in verse 2, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity in whose spirit there is no deceit. In verses 1 and 2, we have these, these parallel statements. 
uh, the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, right? These are sort of external things. These are things uh, that have happened to the blessed man. But here, this word deceit is really talking about the heart of the blessed man. In the blessed man, there is no deceit, which means in the man who's not blessed, the man who walks the path of silence, there's deception going on. This means that if you are walking the path of silence, you're being deceived. If you are not confessing sin, and we'll see this later as well, you have been deceived. 1 John 1.8, very common verse to us, says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The church father, Augustine, whose favorite psalm was Psalm 32, so much so he had it inscribed on the wall next to his bed before he died so he could meditate on it. He said that the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. The man on the path of silence has been deceived. Now, how has he been deceived? Where is this deceit coming from? First, he's been deceived into thinking that his sin is really no big deal. This is what sin does. It deceives us into thinking, well, my sin, I mean, it's really not that big of a deal, right? I mean, it's not illegal, maybe, or it hasn't caused a big problem, a big issue that I'm aware of. It's really not that big of a deal. Second, the man on the path of silence has been deceived into thinking that God doesn't really know the truth about him. Now, we would never admit this, right? We're good Christians with good theology, and so we know that God knows all things, right? We acknowledge that, but when it comes to actually practicing, there, we have to admit there are times that we really think we practice as though God doesn't already know what we've done. I mean, if we're not confessing our sin, are we pretending as if we know something about ourselves that God doesn't already know? Third, he's been deceived into thinking that his sin doesn't really affect anyone else. The man on the path of silence who has unconfessed sin has been deceived into thinking that his sin doesn't really have much of an effect on anyone else. I mean, we think this way, don't we? It's just, it's just my issue. I know it's wrong. I know that this is a struggle that I've had, and I give in to this temptation, but it's just me, right? This doesn't really, doesn't really bleed into other areas of my life or affect the church as a whole. This is deception, There's any number of other ways that we're deceived as well, but these are three primary. So we see that the blessed man is a man in whom there's no deceit. So the man on the path of silence has been deceived. But hiding from our sin does not just flow from a heart of deception. It actually leads to more and more deception. The longer we think we're getting away with our sin and the longer it goes unnoticed by others, we start to really believe we're getting away with it. It becomes easier for us to return to it. We forget it more easily afterwards. 
Our heart grows more and more hardened toward it each time we commit it and nothing happens. The deception takes root in our heart. Perhaps we even become convinced that what we're doing isn't, is it really sin after all? What was once something we tried to avoid is now something we fully embrace. Now, what about you? Are you here? Have you been what the Puritan Thomas Watson called? Uh, do you have what the Puritan Thomas Watson called a Delilah sin? One that you're holding on to, refusing to let go, doing everything you can to conceal it from God? Brother or sister, your conscience is seared. Your sin is a big deal because it's rebellion against a holy God. God really does know the truth because he created you and he knows everything about you, even your most intimate thoughts. And your sin is affecting others around you, even those in this very room. You see, our sin weakens the body of Christ. But how, you might ask, how does my sin weaken the body of Christ? Well, it can happen in several ways. We're gonna look at two of them. We're gonna look at physical pain and spiritual pain. We see both of these in Psalm 32. First, physical pain. Not only does hiding from our sin lead to and flow from deception, it also leads to pain. Look at verses three and four. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. First, we see that it is possible to experience physical pain when we hide our sin. Hiding our sin, refusing to confess it to God can cause real physical pain. David says he felt as though his bones were wasting away. He was groaning. His strength was dried up. I don't think we have to take all of these phrases literally. Were David's bones actually wasting away? Probably not. But did he experience physical pain that caused him to write like he felt his bones were wasting away? Yeah, he did. Another way to translate this statement in verse 3 is, my bones are becoming old. They're rotting. David started feeling like his body was growing older at an unusually fast pace. The pain made him feel like he was rushing towards death. This kind of physical pain caused, caused David to literally groan or cry out in agony. Have you ever been in the kind of pain that's caused you to groan? If you're a woman who's given birth, I'm sure you have. I haven't given birth, but I've witnessed it. I was groaning as well. <laughs> Not as badly. <laughs> Don't pretend that I have experienced that kind of pain. Uh, if you ever had a kidney stone, I've had one of those. That caused me to groan. There are a thousand other kinds of sicknesses, ailments, or injuries that many of us have experienced that bring to mind the kind of pain David is talking about. We know what it's like to be in the kind of pain that causes us to groan. But have you ever thought that maybe the pain you're feeling might be the result of unconfessed sin? Does that seem horribly unscientific to you? 
Does that idea seem really outdated or antiquated? I admit, when I think about that, sometimes it's hard for me to accept. If it's a physical problem, it should be able to be figured out, dealt with by medical professionals, right? If it's a spiritual problem, well, then I can go to God for it. But here we see that things may not be so black and white. If you've been a Christian for almost any amount of time, you've probably experienced what David is describing. Being in sin, spending so much time and energy concealing it, covering it up, can result in real physical pain. Maybe it happens in the other direction. Maybe you've experienced physical pain due to sickness or injury, and it begins to affect your spiritual state. If you fall into discouragement or depression or anger because of the physical pain you're experiencing. Either way, it's important for us to recognize that our spiritual nature is not separate from our physical nature, okay? They are distinct natures within us, but they are not separate. They play off and into one another, and they cannot be separated in this life. You see, we are embodied souls, and we cannot choose to live otherwise, This is why it's not only possible, but likely that we will experience physical pain when we we try to hide from our sin. The spiritual damage it does to our souls will almost always take its toll on our physical bodies. So remember that your sin affects the body of Christ because it can have an effect, first of all, on your physical body. Hidden sin can result in physical pain in many ways. It can lead to less energy, getting less sleep, poor dietary habits, poor digestion, loss of appetite, chronic pain, or any number of other ailments or illnesses. We must never think that our bodies have nothing to do with our souls. We have a dual but interconnected and dependent nature. When we hide our sin, we become less fruitful and less useful to the body of Christ in a very real, tangible, and physical way. So that's the first thing that we see, uh, physical pain. But I believe the pain that David is describing is actually worse than just physical pain. Yes, the physical pain is excruciating, but that's because underneath it, inside of it, is the spiritual pain that is bringing it about. This is where his guilt and shame have taken root. Now, not literally in his bones. There's not literal guilt and shame in his bones. But David understands that there is an undeniable connection between spiritual pain, the guilt and the shame that he's experienced, and his physical pain. Now, where is this coming from? Is it like God is like shooting him with lightning bolts as a way of punishing him for his sin? That's what's causing this pain? No, the pain comes in at least two different, though not separate, ways. First, we experience um, spiritual pain from our own guilt and shame. We experience pain because we know we stand guilty before a holy God, and we're ashamed of it. Let's talk a little bit about guilt and shame, because it's it's important for us to define what these terms are. If we're going to talk about guilt and shame, and shame, we kind of have to have a good idea of, of what these things mean. So David Pallison, who's a um, biblical counselor, he writes a lot about biblical counseling. He defines guilt 
I think this is a good definition. He defines guilt as an awareness of failure against a standard. Okay? Guilt is an awareness of failure against a standard. An awareness of the fact that you have not achieved some kind of standard. So an example of guilt might be if I know I'm supposed to be kind and patient with people, but I repeatedly lose my temper or lash out in anger against them, then I'll experience guilt. Because I know I'm supposed to behave in one way, supposed to have this kind of behavior and attitude, but I have not measured up to that standard. And so I, I see that and I experience guilt. That's real guilt. That's true guilt. That's actually good guilt, right? You should feel guilty for not achieving that standard, right? There's also false guilt. We set up a false standard for ourselves. So maybe uh, the example Pallison uses is if you're a stay-at-home mother and you have this standard of cleanliness for your home so that at any moment in time, if someone were to come to your house and, and see anything on the floor, anything not picked up, you would feel as though you have not met this standard, right? That's a false standard. It's impossible, um, especially if you have kids um, or husband. Um, they're all messy. And so that's a false standard, but you can experience real guilt, right? You just, it's, a, it's a guilt against a standard you've set for yourself, which is a false standard. So there's, there's real, true guilt and false guilt, okay? So that's guilt, the failure of achieving a standard. But shame, shame is a little bit different. Shame is a sense of failure before the eyes of someone else. A sense of failure before the eyes of someone else. So with shame, other people know about my failures. They've seen me for who I am. And this guilt that I've been experiencing now feels like it has become part of who I am in their eyes, okay? So we become ashamed of ourselves. We hold our head down. We don't speak We just want to disappear because we feel naked and exposed. This is what makes unconfessed sin so damaging to the church. You think, this is just my sin. Why do I have to? I don't have to confess this. No one needs to know about this. This is why it's so damaging to the body of Christ. When we keep silent about our sin and we try to hide it, we get crushed by the weight of our guilt and shame. We retract, we isolate, we don't fully commit to others. We don't show care or concern for others because we don't really want others to do the same for us, right? Because we're afraid somebody gets too close I'm going to get found out. Where there is a pattern of unconfessed sin, fellowship will be broken. Where there's a pattern of unconfessed sin, fellowship will be broken. Our desire to be around brothers and sisters decreases. Sitting under the teaching of the scripture becomes boring or maybe even annoying. Singing songs about the goodness and glory of God seems pointless because we don't really want to get specific about what's going on in our own hearts. So you see that if we let guilt and shame take root in our lives, how it begins to destroy our own self-perception and how we perceive those around us, especially in the church. Now, 
taking this out even further, it doesn't take much to see how holding on to these kinds of feelings and thoughts um, can result in someone taking their own life, right? Now think about it. What if you felt ashamed of things you have done or said, and it had, you've been living under that, um, that shame for years, and you have been assuming that everyone was thinking that you were dirty, unlovable, or your life was a huge disappointment to those around you, and nothing you could do would change that. Verse 10 in Psalm 32 tells us that those who are wicked have many sorrows. It's no surprise that people might choose to take their own lives after living under that kind of sorrow and persistent shame. So one of the reasons we experience physical or spiritual pain is because of our own guilt and shame. But that's not the whole story. Look at verse four. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Another source of our physical and spiritual pain comes from the merciful hand of a loving father. God cares so much for his children that he will not let them persist in sin for long without bringing his heavy hand down upon them. Now, what does this mean? This hand is one of both judgment and mercy. It's judgment because God is pressing onto us the seriousness of our sin and the reality of our guilt before him. Yes, we are guilty. And yes, our shame is real. Those things are real. They can be real and true. And here we have a picture of God sort of pressing his hand down upon us to help us realize the seriousness of our sin and to remind us that these things you're feeling, this guilt and the shame, don't forget about them. These things are real. Think about this. But... The ultimate goal of God's heavy hand is never to leave us in our sin, but to bring us out of it. Our guilt and the shame and the pain we feel because of it are the means God uses to bring about conviction and ultimately bring us to the path of confession. And we see this in the next verses. Look at verse five. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. When we hide our sin, our desire is to cover it over ourselves. We want to try to dress it up, to find something attractive and place it over our sin, right? When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, where did they hide? Does anybody know? Bushes, Genesis tells us they hid among the trees of the garden. These were the trees of the garden of Eden in a sinless world. They were beautiful and perfect. We always try to cover our disgusting sin with something that makes us look more pleasing to others. But what does verse 1 and verse 5 in Psalm 32 tell us? When we acknowledge our sin and uncover it, God is the one who covers it. 
We see this in the story of Adam and Eve. They put fig leaves around themselves. God says, no, it's not going to work. You need these animal skins, right? God, God is the one who covers them in the end. Blessed is the man whose sin is covered. You see, only God can cover our sin. Nothing we do will hide our true nature from God. No amount of forgetting or suppressing or changing the subject will rid the stain of sin from your conscience. Only the covering that God provides. All the guilt, all the shame, all the pain is meant to point us toward our need for forgiveness. That's the answer. We've already seen that we can't rid ourselves of guilt because our guilt is real. We can't just forget about it. We really are guilty. We can't rid ourselves of sin because we've sinned against a holy God and we deserve eternal punishment. But if we deserve judgment from God, how can he forgive us? Remember 1 John 1, 8 And nine, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, how is it just for God to forgive us and cover our sins? Because the payment we owe for our sin, which is death, was already paid by Christ When he suffered and died on the cross. You see, God can't just forget about sin or pretend it never happened. That's not just. To be just, our sin must be punished. And that's why Christ came. To take upon himself the punishment for our sin that we deserve. So here we have the key to unlocking the cage of guilt and shame that we build for ourselves. We want out, right? We don't want to bear the weight of our guilt. We don't want to feel the heavy hand of God upon us just like David did. We don't want the physical and spiritual pain that comes when we try to hide our sin from God. So we confess it. We bring it out in the open. We acknowledge it. We admit it without conditions, without excuses, Without pointing fingers, it's ours, it's mine, it's true, it's all true. I'm guilty as charged, I deserve nothing but judgment. It's in this confession that we find the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'd like you to keep your finger in Psalm 32 and turn over to the New Testament to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2 starting in verse 13. We're going to come back to Psalm 32, but I want, to see, I want us to see how God dealt with our sin in Christ in a very clear passage, Colossians 2, verse 13. Colossians 2, 13 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Man, that's what we feel like, right? We're in sin. We're concealing it. We're on this path of silence. Don't talk about it. We feel the the weight of God's heavy hand down upon us. David said, My bones are wasting away through my groaning all day. Here, You who were dead 
and your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. How? Having forgiven us all our trespasses. Okay, how did he do it? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. But why? How could he do that? How could God just cancel it? Ah, oh, it doesn't matter. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. God didn't just forget about your sin. He dealt with it. He punished your sin at the cross. He nailed it to the cross. Now, you weren't nailed to the cross. Jesus was nailed to the cross for you. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. God flips the tables. Satan, you're going to come and accuse Caleb of this sin. You're right. He's a sinner. But guess what? It's nailed to the cross. and You should be ashamed of yourself. He flips it. God put Satan, God put the accuser and all of his demonic forces to open shame. Not you. This is typical. This is what God does. He flips the tables. So we see that when we confess our sins, we first find forgiveness. This is what David found. But second, going back to Psalm 32... We don't just find forgiveness, we also find protection. Look at verses 6 and 7. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. David encourages us to pray to God when he may be found. Now, this doesn't mean that there are times when God cannot be found, okay? God is never on break or away from his desk. He can always be found. We have to remember that David lived in the Old Testament sacrificial system when the Israelites had specific days and times when they would go to the tabernacle for prayer or when the priests would offer the sacrifices according to God's commands. David is simply telling them, make use of the appointed times for prayer and atonement that were available to them. As New Testament believers, the time for us to call upon God is now. Right now, God can be found. He has appointed this time, this very day, to be a means of drawing your heart back to Him. So take advantage of this day, this moment, and offer a prayer to Him. David goes on to say, surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. This is obviously metaphorical language meant to communicate God's protection even in the midst of great distress. Think of Noah and God protecting him through the devastating flood. Well, God protects those who trust in him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. All of these statements are meant to highlight God's protection over his children. All along, we've been saying that we cannot hide from our sin. That's because here we are told that God himself is our hiding place. 
He is the one who preserves our lives and delivers us from suffering, affliction, and trouble. But what does this have to do with confessing our sins? You see, when we confess our sin to God, our relationship with Him is fully restored. There is no hiding. There's no pretending. There's no wearing a mask, pretending as if you've forgotten or as though God has forgotten what you've done. There's no shame, and we experience His protection. We are strengthened with His strength because we have experienced His forgiving love and tender care. Just like a child clings to his father when he's afraid, so we cling to God because we know his love for us is real and abounding because he has forgiven us. We don't fear his judgment. And we hide from God. We aren't honest and open with him. We're really afraid at that moment of his judgment. But man, when we confess our sin, we rejoice in his protection because we know his judgment isn't coming. It's already been judged in Christ. We don't have to worry whether he will really care for us because we've been open and honest with him about who we are, what we've done, and he has forgiven it. When we confess our sins, we are assured of God's protection. But when we confess our sin, we can also be sure of God's direction. Verses 8 and 9. Here the speaker changes, okay? David is speaking in verses 1 through 7, but in verses 8 and 9, God takes over. God is the author of all of Scripture, right? But this is God speaking directly to uh, or through um, Psalm 32, verses 8 and 9. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or will not stay near you. You know, in verse 8, we see that when our relationship with God has been restored and there is no hiding or pretending, we are freed up to receive God's direction. Our hearts are open and soft, and we will more readily hear the voice of God and His Word, and we are more willing to obey it because our hearts have been changed. We've stopped spending so much time and energy hiding, and now we can be fully committed to God's work and His ways. So we receive His direction and counsel. And what's one of the primary ways we receive God's counsel? Through His Word and through the fellowship we have with one another. And like I said before, unconfessed sin damages our relationships with one another. But confessing our sin restores relationships. We're more open to receiving and giving counsel to and from other people. But then notice verse 9. kind of comes out of nowhere. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or will not stay near you. Now, it may not sound like it at first, but these are the words of a loving father giving instruction to his wayward child after their relationship has been restored. Confession has been made. Repentance has been sought. Forgiveness has been applied. And here, the father says, Son, 
You see those horses over there? They have no desire to go where I want them to go. If I want them to take me somewhere, I have to stick a bit, a chunk of metal in his mouth. I have to shove a bridle over his face and force him to do what he does not want to do. Son, don't be like that horse. I don't want to force you. I don't want my hand to have to be heavy upon you. It does not give me pleasure to do that. What I really want is for you to want to be with me. I love you. You're my son. You are created in my image. Christ died with, for you. Now please stay with me. This is a father teaching his son, instructing his son. Look at the horse. Don't be like the horse. Don't be like the mule. Stay with me. You don't have to hide. You don't have to pretend as if I don't know something. Stay here. Oh, church, that we would hear our heavenly Father saying these words to us today. Don't be so quick to run and hide. Stay close to your Father. Because God knows that when we are close to Him, when there is no attempt to hide, we will experience lasting, uninhibited joy. Look at verses 10 and 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. When we live on the path of confession, And we are open about our sin, freely confessing it, not hiding from God. We experience his surrounding and steadfast love. Because again, we see that his love for us is not based on our performance. We confess our sins so he knows everything about us. He already did anyway. And he has assured us of his love and forgiveness. So over and over, we are reminded daily and hourly as we continually make confession that His grace is sufficient for our sin. His love for us abounds more and more. We are surrounded by His steadfast love. Our trust in Him increases because we are receiving His protection and direction because our relationship with Him has been fully restored. All of this leads to worship. Do you get it? Do you see how amazing God's word is right here? His love for us abounds in Psalm 32. Here, just like we see everywhere in Scripture, God's design for our lives is that we would glorify Him by enjoying His presence. God gets the glory we get the joy. God is the main character. He gets the recognition, but we get all the benefits. This is what it means to live on the path of confession. So, 
how should we respond to Psalm 32? Well, I hope it's been clear throughout the entire sermon. We respond by obeying verse 6. Let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. If I could sum up our response to this psalm in one word, you probably know what it would be. Confess. Start today by confessing your sins. Confess them in detail. Confess them without any excuses, without any explanations, without any rationalizing. Be completely open and honest with God because first, he already knows, and second, he is willing and ready to forgive you and to restore you fully into his presence. But we should also confess our sins to one another. James 5.16 tells us to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Now, this does not mean that you need to confess every sin to everyone in the church. That's not what we're saying. In fact, that would not be right or good for our church. But there needs to be a few people in your life who know what your deepest struggles are and who have the freedom to walk with you through those struggles and point you to Christ. We have to remember that we are all being deceived somehow by some sin. We need the help and guidance and fellowship of others in order to continue to fight against sin and pursue maturity in Christ. How else can we respond? We must never simply confess our sin, okay? The goal of confession is not to just get stuff off our chest. This is really bothering me. I just need to get it out on the table and be done with it, right? It's not meant to be just therapeutic. It's meant to result in heart and life change. This is why we must always take one more step after confession, which is repentance. We confess our sins, then we turn away from them. We go the other direction. We pursue holiness in Christ. So today, I encourage you to confess your sins to God and others. Complete your confession by turning away from sin and returning to your heavenly Father. And we're about to sing one last song as a way to respond to God's word. There's going to be a few people in the back. We're going to put some people in the back in the sunroom who will be available to pray with you if you would like. So please take this opportunity to confess your sins to God and one another. Is God's hand heavy upon you today? Then come out of hiding. We're about to sing these words. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, safe from wrath, and make me pure. Don't stay locked in the cage of guilt and shame. Go to your heavenly Father who stands ready to receive you because walking the path of confession leads to joy in God. Let's pray.